Welcome to Michael Leaves in Context. Jesus Christ gave some last words and recorded in Matthew 28. Go therefore, and the participle in that verse should be make disciples as you go. We put the emphasis on go, but the verse really says make disciples as you go of all ethnos, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And we often comment about his greatest commission was our greatest omission. Uh, I've been in pastoral work now for 40 years and counting, and have to say, myself included, and churches I know, well, we spend more time building churches than making disciples, and Jesus told us just the opposite. He said, you make disciples, and I'll build the church. Dennis Allen is our guest today. He is the chief executive officer of both national and international enterprises. He's got an interesting vita, and I'm trying to summarize this for our friends here, Dennis, but you've worked in the electronics, software, building materials, environmental services, oil and gas, etc. But I'm going to jump ahead because you're an F-15 fighter pilot. And knowing a little bit about our men and women in uniform, that sets the baseline for me for everything else you've done, because you were a pilot, you were a mission commander, you were an instructor, you got a Bachelor of Science in Industrial Management from University of Alabama. Alabama? Mm-hmm. Do you have red on your car? Amen, brother. No. You have, you have an A on your car or a UA on your car? I, I'm, I'm apostate. <laughs> I don't. I don't. Sorry. <laughs> And, and you then went to University of Cincinnati, so you should have Red Buckeye there somewhere. Did his MBA there. He's also an alum of the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. And Dennis, something got in your radar, and you decided to write a book called The Disciple Dilemma, Rethinking and Reforming How the Church Does Discipleship, an area near and dear to my heart. So thanks for joining us on the podcast. Oh, Michael, thanks for letting uh, Ned in the third grade show up with the professionals. <laughs> So here's the deal. I sat in a church not too long ago with a group of young pastors, 12 or 15, and a lot of them were small group leaders. And we were going through, you know, the typical church evaluation. How are we doing with small groups and making disciples? And and uh, I asked the most obvious and unnerving question. I said, how do you make a disciple? <laughs> First pregnant pause, then a bunch of, let's just say, non sequitur answers. And then we started writing words on the white marker board, which is what you do authentic and you know, fully devoted follower and so forth and so on. And, and and I sat back after 45 minutes of this, and I'm not known for my diplomacy. And I said, this is an amazing thing. Jesus told us 2,000 years ago to make disciples, and you guys can't give me a simple, clear definition of how to make a disciple. And I still maintain the church just doesn't know what to do. So help us out, Dennis. First of all, how did you get involved in this? And uh, B, walk us through some of the things that that you do see working in the local church. Yeah, I feel like this is sort of like explain God in two paragraphs or less and give two examples, you know, right? <laughs> so um, I think the the challenge that we're facing is, as you pictured it a moment ago, we have a lot of people who have a generalized conceptual framework, an abstract framework of what the discipleship process ought to be, but we don't really understand the pragmatics that go with that if we take a look at the biblical view Christ gave us. So let me start with this point, because I think this was your first question. A bunch of theological thugs ambushed me at Oxford and said, you're going to write the book. <laughs> I didn't want to write the book. I've never written a book. I, after having done it, I know you've written a number of them, but after you've 
been through this process. I don't ever want to do that again. That's just, it's just, uh, <laughs> it's incredible, right? But I thought it would lose itself on a shelf somewhere and become just a dusty uh, tome sitting out somewhere. And somebody picked it up. I was pressed forward by some people that you're probably pretty close friends with. Uh, some of them from Oxford. Oz Guinness was one of my mentors in getting this thing off the yeah. dock and moving along. And he said, get ready, you're going to face some headwinds with some of the things you're saying in this book because they're provocative and the church generally doesn't like it. So the hope in this is we have a fantastic plan given to us by Christ in the New Testament and a fantastic legacy in the Old Testament about what discipleship really ought look like and how it ought be implemented. We just have gotten a little lost with 18 centuries worth of clutter trying to upgrade what Jesus gave us. Mm -hmm. And so therefore we have some confusion to deal with. When we started a new church about four years ago now called Stonebridge Bible Church, and naively I said, we're going to focus on three things, exposition, discipleship, and prayer. And I said, the reason these are the three cornerstones that don't change, don't move, we're not going to talk about programs and you know activism and doing these things. Sure, those are by the way, but if we don't do what Jesus said, and it's got to start with the authority, right, with Scripture, but he said, make disciples from your experience. I mean, is, we get distracted. We have all these important ministries. You know, the church, aforementioned church, we were both talking about before recording in the manual, 112 ministries. Great church. Wow. Great ministries. How do you know if they're making disciples, Dennis? The biggest challenge that I face in the commercial world, it's a repeating script. I go into troubled corporations. That's that's why my resume looks like an attention deficit disorder, right? I, I go in <laughs> and I, I deal with troubled companies, typically that are owned by private equity, Wall Street groups uh, that are in trouble. So my job, my duty is to help try to turn these struggling corporations around. So I guess biblically, you can say I'm in the job of corporate repentance, right? Trying to turn corporations around. I like it. The script in the commercial world is eerily similar to the Christian world. And you mm -hmm. leading a church have seen this, you felt that you know it. And that's this mission distraction kills organizations. When you know what your mission ought to be and you stay on it, everything lines up with that. But when all the tyranny of the urgent, Hummel's book, when all of the distractions of being a manager instead of a leader begin to clutter our lives, we go in the ditch. And that's when we become very action, activity, task, budgeting, metric oriented, and we get away from the, the, the operating system Jesus gave us for discipleship. I used to do a lot of pastor's workshops, and I said it's easier to build a building than make disciples. Mm, exactly. It's easier to raise money for a program, hire a, a pastor than it is to make disciples. Cindy and I, oh, it's been 20 years ago, we created this thing called Marriage Mentor Group, and it was just a veil for discipleship. But we've handpicked. Uh, the first group was too big. I think it was 12 or 14 couples. We owned them for two years. They came to our home every Sunday night for two hours. I made them go through Howard Hendricks' uh, Living by the Book. I made them go through most of Paul N's uh, Handbook to Theology. And then we supplemented with stuff on marriage, like Don and Sally Meredith's little fill-in-the-blanks. And then I pursued each guy individually for lunch, for coffee, for breakfast. Cindy did the same with the women. And I forget the number of groups we did over the years, Dennis, but I often said what we saw replicated in those two years was more than all the sermons I preached, more than all the programs we were involved with. And that's why I'm attracted to your book. Uh, you know, it's a clarion call. Let's go back to this as the football, right, to begin there. So 
I appreciate what you're doing and I extol what you're doing. And it's actually provoked me to say, we're going to do a series of podcasts on this to try to gin it up again, but start, start over with us. You've got a couple, probably not the pastor. You got a couple who are mature Christians, maybe in their forties or fifties. And they go, we got to do something else, honey. Where do they start to make disciples, Dennis? You know, the most important piece of this puzzle is the comprehension of the idea that discipleship is transformation. It's not tasks. It's not membership. It's not a resume. It's kind of like one of the explanations I give to people is when you think about um, particle physics, particles uh, like the neutrinos and quarks, you can only measure them in velocity. If you try to look at their weight, in other words, their resume, they don't exist. They only exist in forward motion. And in Christ's repeated statements about discipleship, for the, for the pragmatics to come out, you have to get the sense that Jesus was saying, you, come follow me. It is motion in following Christ, in the transformation of my muscle memory. Now, that's the individual recognizing who they are in Christ as opposed to what they do or how they're supposed to behave then we get to link onto that. What does this idea mean as I am progressing forward as a disciple? You were talking about go make disciples, and that I love the way you explain it, which is it's progression. It's not like check a block, you're done, that's over with. How do we then take the reason for the hope that's within us and bring that alive for the non-believers who are around us, who are actually being discipled? By the way, folks, if you don't like any of the provocative things I say, this is really on Michael. You can blame him. It's not my problem. He let me on the podcast. 100%. Yeah. So, <laughs> so this idea of disciples only being pristine little Sunday school people sitting in their chairs is bunk. The reality is, as we stand around and sit around, it is neighbors loving them deeply as we are being transformed and they are being transformed. And leaders... I want you to hear that the reason we wrote this book is because we think hiding in plain sight are a bunch of issues that are keeping us, and this is on you as leaders to fix, a bunch of issues that are corrupting discipleship. So therefore, making disciples is important at the individual level, but here and crucially, leaders, if we don't change the game in Christian culture, we're going to keep getting what we already got. Churches get pulled into, and a lot of it has to do with where they are, the cultural context, the sphere of influence they have. If you're in, we talked about Washington, D.C., you have military influence, political leaders. We're in Middle Tennessee now. We have a, a larger health care and music industry population. If you, you know, you go around the country, so forth and so on. Does that change the, the way a leader or a person makes a disciple knowing their cultural context? I think it's really important to know Short answer to start with, fundamentals, no, but the pragmatics, absolutely okay. yes. And here's why I say that. In the corporate world, just like in the church world, we think about strategy connecting to mission. And the reality is, let's say we're all trying to get to Nashville, right? That's where we want to go. But I'm starting in Chicago. You're starting in San Diego. We're both going to take a journey, but the route's going to be very, very different. There are unique strengths of people, talents of people, vocational callings of people. There is a lot of individuality in this, and therefore the fundamentals are there, but each Church, it's a discipleship is a local thing, Michael. That's what I would urge to say here. We don't have a single sermon, a program, a seminar, or a national statement that fixes this. It's local, very tailored, very strategic. Uh, Jesus Christ handpicked a dozen guys. His public ministry always strikes me because he's really 
only doing for three years that we have record of without equal singular in mission. You know, I only do that which the Father tells me. I always do that which is pleasing to the Father. I mean, we can go down the line. I'm struck by the simplicity of three years with 12 guys. And, you know, we did it in two years with a handful of couples. And I, I often bemoan why does it have to be so difficult? Why? What What are some of the obstacles, church? Is it the ABCs, attendance, building cash? We're, fi- we're focused on those things church-wise as opposed to where's my sphere of influence? Who, who am I pursuing? Who am I shepherding? Who am I checking? How's your prayer life? How can I pray for you? How's your marriage? Let's read this book together and talk about it. Why is that so hard? I think it was Chesterton that talked about uh, the idea that Christianity is not an idea tested and found wanting, but something found hard and therefore left untried. And I think in this context, we're Mm. staring at the same problem in the world of Christian community, which is pastors come in with the greatest of passion. By the way, everything that I'm saying here, I'm cheering for pastors. I am cheering for small group leaders. I'm cheering for the ministries of churches. So don't take this as criticism. Take it as a member of the board who's asking provocative questions, right? That's my my contextual thought. When we get into business, the greatest failure for the people that work for me over and over again is that tyranny of the urgent. The next thing, the next crisis distracts us from filtering every single crisis, every single event, every single capital budgeting decision, every single metric, every single choice that we make for a sermon series through the mission. Everything we do should be through Jesus' great directive. That should drive the DNA, the culture, the glue, the chemistry of every single Christian organization instead of, I'm going to bat away all these fires today, and sooner or later I'll get around to this idea of making disciples. That connects with your comment a little earlier about Jesus is in charge of building the church. We're in charge of going, making to all nations and nationalities. Some short answers, maybe. A quick question. What's a disciple? Give me a, a succinct definition. Doulos, bondservant, follower, fully unconditionally surrendered and in the process of transformation. Do you have to be a disciple to make a disciple or make a disciple to be a disciple? <laughs> well... Okay, you're trying to bait me into a trap here. Let me try. Let me try to come around. No, I, no, I'm serious because we we hear this all the time, right? I mean, I do. Yeah. So here's here's sort of the answer to the chicken and egg question. I think, am I fully unconditionally surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ? If so, a number of things are going to occur. It's a little like putting a match to gasoline. Something's going to happen, and therefore, in <laughs> my pursuit of Christ. I am going to worship. I am going to praise. I am going to want to go on mission trips. I am going to want to talk to people about my faith, both believers and non-believers, instead of taking my membership card and saying, well, I guess I'm good. Everything's fine. Don't want to get to program or too pedantic, but how long does it take to help a person become a disciple? I know that's a trick question. I'm trying to be clever, but there's a process. It takes time. It takes engagement. It takes some kind of objective and some goals, right? I have been so looking forward to this conversation with you because you have significant (laughs) credentials in what you do, experience in what you do. And some of the guests you've had, like I'm just cringing thinking about, you know, Annie Downs and Dan Spader and all these folks you've had on talking about the subject of discipleship. But here goes Ned in the third grade taking a run at this, right? I think it's really crucial to realize if you're old enough to qualify for a learner's permit and you've been a believer for more than six months, you better be asking yourself the question, why 
is my life in Christ not active in doing the things that Christ told us to do? And arguably even younger than that learner's permit age. But the idea of what you just did with those couples for two years is today for eight out of 10 people sitting in the pew, a non-event. It doesn't exist. The research numbers that we found as we looked at 500 churches and Pew and Barna and IPPR and all these other people talking about this say that eight out of 10 people, Michael, have no spiritual life other than 1.7 times a month attending your sermon. They have no prayer life. They have no fellowship. They have no Bible study. They have nothing. That's the default. And so when we turn and say, how fast can I be a disciple? Hey, you can be just like Jesus's original 12 guys, they were all non-believers when they started being disciples. So instantaneous membership card in the sense of being a disciple, right? But you're going to follow and you got to keep following. That would be my provocative shot at the first question. Uh, Hendricks was famous for saying, um, if you were never more ready for heaven the day you trusted Christ, why are you still here? I like that. And that's haunted me for a lot of years. Um, and as I get older, I was talking to my best friend on the phone coming in this morning, and I keep saying our runway is getting shorter every day we awaken. The time Christ has for us, and you're a driven guy. Obviously, if you're an F-15 pilot, you're no slouch. A lot of people aren't disciplined, Dennis. They're not. Right? I mean, and I don't. I appreciate your diplomacy with not being unhappy with pastors and small group leaders. I can because I are one. So I am unhappy with them because we're paying them a salary. They've got training education and they ain't flying a plane, buddy. They are not working out. They're not staying in shape. And so part of it's a frustration, which doesn't help from a leadership standpoint. But if my identity is in Jesus Christ that I was going to hell before I responded by faith and I've now been given eternal life and I'm supposed to live this as a thank you back to him, why are only one, and I, I think you're being generous, eight out of ten, <laughs> whatever number it is, they have no interest in becoming a disciple or even know what this is about. Can I uh, take a run at the thesis of the book to answer that question? I think that'd be appropriate at this point. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's push it into afterburner and get on through the sound barrier here. So, so get ready. There's going to be some noise. The thesis of the Go. book is, for me as an individual disciple, it ain't my fault. It's on you leaders. Now, let me just be provocative about this for a moment. It is crucial that we recognize the biblical case that the leadership of the church owes the people in the pew a culture, a chemistry, a muscle memory education such that we do realize that even if I'm the lowest level of non-talent in the universe, we joke about fighter pilots, you know, the, the difference between a fighter pilot and an ape is that the ape always peels his banana before he eats it. The lowest <laughs> level of qualification in the universe in Christ has the duty to follow Christ, but the leadership owes every single one of us the understanding of what Jesus expected. And what we have done in this, the reason why so many of us don't know what a disciple really is, we think it's membership and activities, why we don't understand lordship, transformation, unconditional surrender, is because we've created a DNA of programs, concierge Christianity, optional lordship, hang out in a group, you're good as a disciple. We have fogged the room, and the people in there have no idea where they are. How's that for a start? 
Give me some marks of a disciple. Symptoms, you're saying? No. Uh, so I, I would say things, and I don't want to be cliche, because I know you've done critical thinking on this issue, but we use the phrase self-feeder. A person who gets in the Word every day, I have this little shtick I say, you need to be in the Word every day, not because you have to, but because you can. Not because you should, but because you must. Not because, you know, it's an obligation, but it's a joy. It's a relationship. And we have all, you know, Emmanuel, we did this marvelous job of, it was called Seek, Serve, Share. Seek Him constantly, serve Him faithfully, share Him boldly. And we argued that if you don't have a personal relationship with Christ in His Word daily, praying throughout the day, it's a fabric of who you are, you're never going to grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ. You've used the word lordship about six times now. We can talk about that for a moment. But what are some marks? You said this man or this woman is a disciple because they're not just doing, but their being is is identified by some of these things. Yeah, so from the outside, I would say there are some observables from the human level first. Let's, let's start on the outside okay. with the physical, and then we can get into the spiritual deeper as well. I want to know that there are wingmen around you. I want to know that you're not flying solo in the universe. I'm really, really concerned when I look at Jesus' model of discipleship that radical Western autonomy has said, I'm the lone wolf needing nothing yeah. from nobody. All I got to do is catch Pastor Michael's sermon a couple times a month. I'm good. I'm fine. So I'm looking for wingmen coming alongside me saying, that ain't it. This is We're going to go through life together. I, I remember listening to your interview with Andy Downs talking about the messiness of life, right? And, the, and laughing about it a little bit. But it is the ordinariness of us accompanying one another through life to keep each other's six o'clock cleared of bad stuff, as well as making each other better in what we are doing. Now, if I am really surrendered in my do loss, my argument is going to be my burn and my yearn is going to be getting into the owner's manual, the operating system that the Lord Jesus Christ gave us. My yearn and my earn is to be worshiping and praising before the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are all the results of discipleship, not the cause of it. We've got to get that straight in people. You need to be running the race with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength to chase this. And are you doing it together? Do each one of us, including pastor easily, doctor easily, professor easily, who is a veteran experienced in Christ, does he have a mentor, somebody who can look into his soul? I think the, the cliche sometimes is, do you have a 2 a.m. Waffle House friend? Waffle House is that ubiquitous 24-hour-a-day <laughs> restaurant, right? Who you can call anytime and say, Michael, I need you to meet me at Waffle House so I can talk to you. And Michael can look at Dennis and say, you have something chewing your soul apart, right? That, that would be a starting conversation on things I'm looking for in the physical realm, passion in the things we want to do, but also the accompaniment, relationships is what you've talked about, and that is so core to Christianity rather than just gathering ship. I don't know if it's the way God wired me or what insecurity probably. I've always pursued other more mature men, always, my entire life. When I was you know, junior high basketball player, I mean, I was always pursuing someone better, older, more mature than me in whatever field I was in. And interestingly, uh, you know, now that I'm 65, there are fewer men on that list. I mean, there's a couple of them. I talked to one of my professors, Dr. Ed Bloom, the other day for about an hour on the phone and uh, fluent in 13 languages, photographic memory, a oh. uh, scary smart guy. 
And, you know, he, he's getting older. Dr. Alan Hull was an elder that I still reach out to. He's in his late 80s, one of the most godly, kind, sharp, shrewd physician, elder I've ever known. I could go on. But I got this core of guys, band of brothers, whatever you call them. And, you know, the old Paul, Timothy, Barnabas thing, however you want to describe it. But I'm wired that way, Dennis. What's haunting me is that people come to me, men, and they think I'm their guy. I can't be that guy for the, the, the way these, let's just say, eight or ten men who are, they know my secrets. We talk all the time. I call them. I don't wait for them to call me. I, you got to get beyond that, right? I call them, and they know my soul. I know theirs. We're far, we're brothers. We're better, you know, we're closer than brothers. But I can't encourage men enough, you know, to get out of this autonomous thing you mentioned. Guys are alone, they're lonely. How do you move a guy, let's talk about men in particular, from apathy to the things you and I have just talked about to engagement and interest in the things of God? One of my arguments is that we've got to amp the culture down from movie scripts to just real life, right? So what I mean by that is that we all think that Dr. Easley can go walk up to Howard Hendricks and say, hey, be my mentor. And Dr. Howard Hendricks, this fascinating icon of Christianity, would say, you betcha, you're with me. The rest of us, just ordinary guys, we're out there going, wow, well, if I can't find somebody like that and I don't have those kind of creds, I guess I'm just going to sit in the pew and catch the sermon. The reality is we all need wingmen. I have watched us convert some of the most ordinary people into some of the world's best fighter pods. We've even seen a couple of Navy guys make it okay over time, right? So, uh, I mean, pray for them, but, you know, some of them have made it. Um, and the reality a bl- is... A blind pig finds an acorn once in a while, yeah. It is true. We've tried to disciple those guys for years, Michael, and some of them are taking it, right? But um, the reality is for all of us, you are pushing back against the Lord Jesus Christ when you say, I'm doing it solo. I'm staying in isolation. And if we think just for a moment about the big headlines in the Christian community over the last few months, think about the struggles and the causes underneath why we are looking at the Conakuk problem, the Southern Baptist Convention problem, the Robbie Zacharias problem, Hillsong, on and on these lists go. And at the end of the day, we had people who were left alone, even though they were famous people, well-respected people, very influential people, they were left alone. If you are flying in enemy territory and every single human being listening to this conversation as a disciple is over the battle line, you are in enemy airspace. If you're flying alone, you are in grave, grave, I'm going to say discipling danger. I'm not going to say the Lord Jesus Christ isn't sovereign, doesn't have your soul, but you've got to understand as a disciple, crashing and burning is a real threat to you because you are on your own. Men, get a wingman. If men are, and there was countless books, I think of the one, was it O'Sharon, the the friendless American male. Hmm. The title was the best part of the book. But in any event, the guys are, and part of it in the corporate culture, you know this, it's a dog-eat-dog world. You don't show vulnerability. You don't show overt ambition. I mean, it's a knife edge to be in that culture, to want to succeed, watch your you know P's and Q's. It engenders not a fear, maybe it is a fear that I can't, I can't go there. And I keep coming back to I I can't live my own life as a husband, father, grandfather, neighbor to my non-Christian friends without your word wingmen around me. I mean, I thrive on that. I can't think of, I've buried too many friends, and I, I think 
I've got two or three. When they go, I don't know what I'm going to do, Dennis, because my Christian life has been fortified by these guys. I do know what I'm doing. I'm trying to encourage a handful of 30-year-old guys to stay on course, right? Let, let me go back to the question. What I find with men, they're apathetic. They're not mean. They're just apathetic to the things of God. Yeah, I know it's important, Michael, and to use your illustration, yeah, I chased Howard Hendricks for years to be his student and ultimately his friend. It was not a simple process, and I even think twice about sharing those stories because I don't want it to sound exactly like what you just said. At the same time, I got friends that are no names in the world, and they're closer than brothers. How do we get other men, particularly talking about men, to get off their komosayama and make this a serious part of their life. I'm going to go a little cold and clinical on this as well. If you don't want to follow what Christ told you to do as a believer, I'm not very interested in you. Now, yeah, sure, I want to keep trying to encourage you. Yeah, sure, I want you to come along. But I've got bigger fish to fry from my Lord. And this is his model over and over and over again in the New Testament. He would walk up to people and he would say, you, follow me. And it was an invitation. And I think for most men, this idea of you follow me becomes intimidating, thinking, well, I'm supposed to be able to teach or preach or be this guru. Lose it, guys. The reality is, Mm -hmm. let's fly formation together, whether we're talking about cars, golf, or infralapsarianism, no matter where we're going with this thing, let's be together and go through life and stop worrying about the stupendous Hollywood script and start worrying about the fact that Jesus said, get people, pair up, wingman up, follow me. That follow me is Jesus, not my buddy, to go forward. And leaders, this is on you to break those cultural American radical individual barriers down. That's what this this book spends the first half saying, do you think we've got a problem? Look at all this. And the second half saying, Here, leaders, is the biblical encouragement of what you need to do to help people realize our culture, the Christian community culture, is broken. Fix it. Change it. Get back on the mission. You know, technology for all, and I love technology. I'm I'm an early adopter to, uh, to my own peril, but I think it's done more harm than good in the Christian life. I watch our church. I teasingly shame them every Sunday. Open your Bible to or cheat your way on your phone or tablet. They don't use tablets anymore. They're using their phones for reading books, which I think from a neuroplasticity standpoint is a dead end. But that being said, the the tactile nature of opening this book, of reading it, of taking notes, of writing a, a few words on a piece of paper or a journal, whatever you want to call it, of sharing with my wife or my daughter or somebody what I saw today I'd never seen before, that's not hard, but I still go back, Dennis. I can't get these guys to own it. I mean, you said 1.7. I've been saying for years that people go to church 1.4 times a month. And I remember growing up early in my Christian faith, Sunday school was vital. A men's Bible study was, I looked forward to it every week, wouldn't miss it. Uh, when I was teaching Sunday school, even as a college age student, I was teaching a Sunday school class. I wouldn't think of missing a Sunday. Church has become consumerism. It's become a cafeteria. Uh, my kids' sports, my grandchildren's sports, my vacation home, all fine things. But they have now supplanted the meeting together. And then COVID didn't help. So we're still back to this apathy thing. 
We can diagnose all the things that are wrong with it. Give me some prescription, brother. It's not that hard. I don't, I don't believe. What's hard is saying my schedule is my own anymore, mm-hmm. and other people are mm-hmm. going to take priority in my life. That, to me, is the watershed. Am I wrong? Better answer? No, I like your, I like your statement. I would say that, of course, you and your team setting the example of what discipleship looks like is incredibly important. But I would also add to that, I think most pastors, and if I went to a lot of seminaries, and I've done some research on curriculums, most seminaries are not teaching our pastors what does mission and culture really look like, the mission of going and making disciples. What does culture change look like to unwind 18 centuries of fossilization of what we call brand and market-driven Christianity versus the core of the disciples' life, which I think is the core mission of the church. We don't have much help as leaders in Christian community, whether we're elders or deacons or pastors. We don't know what that means. My world is about taking broken organizations and commercial space and saying, what just happened? Where do we go? The steps are the same because they're biblical steps. What you have to do first is you have to realize, what am I here for, really and truly? And the answer is, I'm not here to, quote, unquote, save people, not conversionism. I am here to make disciples of people. And that's the life process, right? That is, I don't just simply wait for the child to be born and then walk away and orphan them. This is a side-by-side walking together, developing together, community together relationship. So our first step to try to wind it back and synopsize this is leaders, I'm concerned in the church, we don't understand what's killing discipleship, and I'm concerned we don't have the path forward. And the path forward is, number one, do you really know who you are called to be? Number two, do you understand what it means to build a culture, the DNA, the chemistry of a body of believers making and developing disciples? Have you seen churches do course corrections and get on track? Absolutely. And I I certainly don't want to imply this is a hopeless, never done before, and so we've got this magic solution. The biblical answer is the biblical answer, and we can see engagements like this. For example, think about the reset in the universe that Francis Chan went through with his crowd, right? We went mega church, and we said, gee, we're not connecting. We need to break this down into, into closer more intimate groups. We have seen some fantastic examples. I've even chatted with a few pastors who have continued to operate in the mega and in one case in the gig example, and they're really focusing in on relationships with, by the way, a lot of people saying, oh, it's not for me. But they continue to drive forward to rebuild disciples who make disciples, multiplication rather than just seminars and programs. You've intimated a number of times in this conversation about discipleship um, there is a maybe an old argument of evangelism is the point of entry and discipleship is the is the growth process. We could discuss that. I've always argued that it's one and the same. That when Christ said make disciples of all ethnos, he did not say share the gospel with them and disciple some. The admonition was make disciples. By the pastoral body of literature, we have the the what a disciple looks like, and we are if we listen carefully. Timothy, Thessalonians, to some extent, Corinth, we hear the elder statesman, Apostle Paul, saying, this is how you make a disciple. This is how you teach others, prescribe and teach these things, Timothy. So the the model has been given. The instruction manual is there. It seems, in my worldview, churches just get 
distracted. I mean, I had two uh, individuals come to me this past Sunday, one all uh, very concerned about voter fraud and voter integrity and, you know, shouldn't the church be more involved in this? Another one came up all concerned about this uh, Jane's revenge. They're legitimate concerns. These are lovely Christian people. And I said to them as kindly as I could, uh, yeah, those are important, but that's not what the church is about. And, and they're, they're disappointed to some degree, but I don't care at this chapter of my life, Dennis. I'm old. I don't, I, I don't care what people think about me anymore. There, there's one person I'm accountable to, ultimately. And that calibration for me was set in stone a long time ago and set in your DNA, too. My continued press is, how do we help people move from apathy to care? One confession from a guy in the pews talking to a professor and a pastor you guys really scare the stew out of us when you keep trying to make us evangelists, <laughs> right? And yeah. while we are all called to the evangel, I'm gonna, I'll just, I would lean toward the the idea like Galatians four that some of your pastors, some of your evangelists, some, 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 not all of us are evangelists, but we all owe the evangel. So we go to First Peter three and we get this in your heart: honor, holy Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give a reason to anyone who asks you the hope that's in you, that's the obligation for us, to live weird lives around the world so people come up and they go, Michael, what exactly makes you tick and that you're ready with a reason for the hope? That, that to me, is a little less scary as a believer trying to say, am I an extrovert or an introvert? Am I supposed to have a bullhorn standing on a crate in the middle of the town square screaming or in the, in the pulpit with Pastor Michael? I can't do those kind of things. But everybody has to be a disciple with the reason for the hope. And I think that's a more understandable perspective for me as a layman. There's a guy listening to this right now. He's driving his car. He's listening to you and me talk about it. He knows the Lord. He's pretty good with his Bible. He's busy. He's important. He's probably, let's say, in his late 40s, early 50s, making a good income, trying to figure out his next house with his kids going off to college, etc., and he's going, you know, I, I I don't know that I'm a disciple, and I don't know that I've ever made a disciple or been involved in a discipleship group or program. Dispel the myth of what I just said so that he doesn't hear it that way. And how do you encourage him? The first piece of the puzzle is the question, are you a follower of Jesus, or are you, as Sam Albury would say, a fan of Jesus? If you're a fan, I like the salvation part, but the upgrade to unconditional surrender— no thanks, I'm good. You've got to make that choice. If you believe that you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are unconditionally surrendered to him, the next step is, who's your wingman? And how are the two of you then flying through life together to develop your personal sanctification, your process forward, that progression? That's step one. All that flows back into your home for your kids, for your life, for your world, for your workplace, for the academies around you, for the media around you. You start changing society once you take that unconditional surrender and a wingman, imperfectly, back into the world. That would be my pragmatic shot at it. Well, I'll add one more pragmatic step. Uh, look in the show notes, The Disciple Dilemma by Dennis Allen. It's available anywhere you buy books online or if you still have a brick-and-mortar store. Uh, we'll have all the information in the show notes about Dennis. You need to look at his website. He's got some great information, testimonials on his website about the text. Again, The Disciple Dilemma, Dennis Allen. Brother, thanks for coming on uh, the podcast, and I, I pray God's going to use this in a, in a big way to 
upset some apple carts and get people righted down the road that we're going to show up one day and cross this threshold. And uh, as Hendricks oft said, I think the Lord Jesus is going to say, where are your men? So perversely, Michael, you discipled people who have been discipling me. Thank you for your ministry and what you've done for my life. And you don't even realize. Well, that's the, isn't that one of the marvels about the body of Christ was one day that we'll see the backside of the tapestry, so to speak. And we'll see all these connections that we had no clue how God was sovereignly orchestrating providentially the events of our lives and we'll just sit there with our mouth open going oh my word I had no idea Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.